0: The Business
1: News Power Hour. Well, welcome to the Business News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Tuesday, the 8th of February. Well it's a jam-packed show this evening as biz news editor Alec Hogg speaks to Lord Peter Hain in a not-be-missed to interview about him ramping up the pressure to get US-based consultancy firm Bain & Company tossed out of the UK. Staying on State Capture, I interviewed political analyst Sanusha Naidu on Transnet shenanigans exposed in the second tranche of the State Capture report, and then the latest from our partners at the Financial Times with more on international business news you need to know. Now, let's get to your news headlines.
2: Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
3: President Sol Ramaphosa faces high expectations for the State of the Nation address this week, with demands rolling in from different sectors of society. Unions are looking for answers for the country's persistently high unemployment numbers, particularly for the youth. The country is unable to function with an extended unemployment rate of 46%, they argue, and call on the president to intervene. Adding to this, Ramaphosa is also expected to extend the 350 Rand Distress Grant or make some sort of announcement about a universal income grant. Almost half the population are receiving a grant of some kind, and pressure is mounting for state intervention in this regard. The report into the July 2021 riots has painted a bleak picture of post-Zuma South Africa, directed by lawlessness and disregard for order and authority. On top of the 50 billion rand looted from state coffers through state capture, the fallout from the riots wiped out another 50 billion rand and led to the deaths of over 340 people. The panel of experts lay this massive financial and moral cost at the feet of failed ANC leadership, whose factional battles politicking and failed policy execution have led South Africa down this path. The ANC's failings ultimately put South Africa's security at risk. Harvard economists have outlined how South Africa's economy has performed poorly relative to its peers over the last decade, failing to recover growth following the financial crisis. While emerging markets saw growth decelerate by one percentage point per annum between 2010 and 2019, South Africa's growth more than halved. The economists highlighted the country's power crisis as a key hurdle over the period, with productivity dropping despite increased spending on capital and labour. They warn that fiscal consolidation is the only path forward and that there is no more room for tax hikes. And now it's on to my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts for the Market Report.
4: The JSE Share Index is up at 76,400. In the price action, it's the gold miners leading the way, multinationals, Anglo Gold and Goldfield, setting the pace with Rupert's Richmond. We've seen lots of interesting corporate action out of that stable, namely the distill heineken transaction and expansion of its unlisted crown jewel, Vomital and Dark Fiber Africa. Lots of interesting things happening at Remgro. On the downside, coal miner Tungela and UK real estate company Hammerson are in the red by more than 2% and the gel, te- gel tech crypto basket is up 4% on the day. In the currency markets, the Rand is largely flat against all the major currencies to 15 Rand 47 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand 91 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand 64 cents to the Euro. Gold is up at $1,820 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around twenty-nine and a half thousand Rand. Brent crude is trading at $91, 50 cents a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back around 670,000 Rand. In the financial news, chemicals and energy group Sasol has flagged a decline in headline earnings for its half year to end December, weighed down by accounting adjustments, such as for its hedges, as well as cold challenges in South Africa. Headline earnings per share are expected to be 16% to 26% lower to end December, with energy group the energy group said in an update on tuesday even as higher oil and chemical prices help to lift profit margins core hips is expected to rise by as much as 191 percent from the previous period's eight rand however a measure Sasol says better reflects its underlying financial performance this measure excludes items including earnings losses of capital projects still ramping up empowerment transactions as well as losses or gains for hedges and other financial instruments that limit the risk of volatility in oil and currency markets.
2: This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Lord Peter Hain, what a privilege to be talking with you again. The whole country is behind what you're doing at the moment in in bringing attention to bear on a multinational called Bain. You've been at this for quite a while and maybe we should just retrace a little bit your steps. You were born in South Africa, you have been a member of parliament, you have been a cabinet member, Uh, you're now a member of the House of Lords but why the interest still in what's going on in uh, your old homeland?
5: Well if I'm allowed to give a plug to my recent memoir, uh, a Pretoria boy. My childhood was in Pretoria, the son of brave anti-apartheid activists, white activists, my parents, Adeline and Walter Hayne, who were both jailed uh, for two weeks, then be- issued with banning orders and finally forced into exile when I was 16 in London in 1966. And th- a few years later, I found myself leading a campaign to stop the Springboks through non-violent direct action, pitch invasions and so on. So anti-apartheid politics is in my blood and uh, that's where my interest in trying to bring back the values of the freedom struggle and the anti-apartheid struggle through tackling the international dimension to state capture and corruption and looting under former President Zuma.
2: Your letter this week published in the Financial Times of London, probably the most influential newspaper in Europe, Uh, your attack on Bain, this multinational, what drives you to do this?
5: Well, I just feel really angry and betrayed by as do a lot of anti apartheid activists of that of my era i mean i'm nearly 72 now uh, who were involved in the anti apartheid struggle as many hundreds of thousands across the world were and of course my parents own sense of duty and sacrifice and the values that they they exhibited and and always uh, and always lived by uh, those were about equality and and human rights and liberty and justice, but above all about integrity. And Nelson Mandela stood for integrity. He wasn't a saint, none of us are, but he stood for integrity, and that has been betrayed in the new South Africa. And frankly, he would be turning in his grave if he was aware of that, as with the other Roman islanders, Ahmed Kothrada, Governor Berkey, um, all, all those who were alongside him. And so that's the motivation, is we did not fight this fight to have people putting their hands in the till, clambering on the gravy train. And in, in terms of my involvement, and I was originally requested to do this by Pravin Gordon and other senior ANC activists, uh, some members of the national executive, uh, back in July 2017, when I was over teaching in johannesburg and uh, it's the international dimension to all this that really really motivates me alec because the state loot the looting the state capture the corruption could not have happened had it not been for the involvement and the complicity of the big corporates that assisted it and so in the financial times article which was published uh, in all its international editions in new york and right across the world yesterday. I spotlight not just Bain & Company, but all of those corporates, the banks, HSBC, Standard Chartered, Bank of Baroda, that use their digital financial pipelines to allow the money laundering, the billions and billions of, of rot to escape through their Johannesburg offices through Dubai and Hong Kong, and then to be transferred to shell companies In turn, by the way, these shell companies, these front companies that were actually owned by the Guptas, but they hid behind other front names, they couldn't have done this without international lawyers, without international uh, consultants, without international accountants. uh, All global corporate names allowing them, enabling them to set up these front companies. So when you go through it and then you get to the estate agents, uh, that I mentioned in the Financial Times article they are the ones that took laundered money looted from South African taxpayers through the state-owned enterprises the South African Revenue Service and so on uh, took that and and spent it on properties now why if you or I try to buy a property we go through the average honest citizen goes through innumerable um really frustrating and time-consuming and stressful loops and obstacles to try and just buy an apartment or a house or whatever it is, even even a car. You've got to show where the money came from. And yet these guys, with, with the complicity of the banks that I've mentioned, with um, Bain and Company helping out, with KPMG and McKinsey and SAP and the international law firm Hogan Lovells, all of these brand names in the business community, they were the ones that, that enabled this to happen. And so what I'm trying to do through my position in London is target the British government in the main, and I've written through uh, the ambassador to uh, President Joe Biden about the American end of this, because of course, Baden Company is an American-originated uh, company, though it's a global one now, to try and get these governments to do something about it.
2: It's not your first rodeo. You've been doing this now for well, four and a half years. Is it going to be different this time around?
5: Well, I honestly don't know. I, the fact that I've got some response from Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is obviously up to his neck in a lot of trouble here, and his senior cabinet minister, Stephen Barclay, who wrote to me saying that he was going to engage directly with Bain, how on earth he'll have any time to do it, since he's just been appointed chief of staff of Number Ten Downing Street, which is a twenty-four-seven job by Boris Johnson to, to bail him out. Uh, but they they promised to engage, and and you've never actually had that before. And and the the fact that the Financial Times wanted this article means, I think, the spotlight is on these global corporates in a way that even four and a bit years ago when i first spoke in the house of lords under parliamentary privilege and bay and hsbc found itself on the front page of the financial times uncomfortably so and its senior executives came to see me saying whoa you know you're damaging our, our company and you, you you could cause people's jobs to be lost which my reply was i don't want to see anybody's job lost but your complicity in this along with all the others has caused a lot of jobs to be lost in south africa a fifth of GDP, it's estimated, wasn't it, Alec, has been wiped out in the in the Zuma decade. Uh, growth is stalled. The economy is isn't in a strong position. Still, you know, crippled by that legacy, and still a lot of corruption around uh, in, in the aftermath. Uh, and and they are they are complicit, and they've got to, they've got to feel the heat, is, is my view. Otherwise, this will just keep happening. Uh, and it'll happen again in South Africa or it'll happen in some other country in the world. Uh, and and, and i just make one final point here to, to, to address your question directly is when I say feel the heat, these companies didn't really care a damn or at least their London and New York and other international executives didn't when it was a South African story when investigative journalists, including yourself and the Daily Maverick team and uh, all of the others were exposing, and it was in the South African media. Well, that was a South African story in a containable bubble, if I could put it this way. But when it went global, as a a result of me making the speech and all the insider information I had fed to me, including by, as I describe it in my book, The Deep Throat Source uh, in the South African State, when I did that, then they, then then I suddenly had KPMG's senior bods come over from New York to see me, McKinsey, um, uh, similarly, uh, and HSBC, and they, you know, what I call turn a blind eye governments in London and New York and Wash and, and Washington and Beijing and Delhi and Dubai and and the rest, um, uh, uh, and then these fee clutching corporates. When they work together, the government's saying, oh, yeah, we've got strong anti-money laundering laws, as the British government does on every opportunity. And on paper, it does, as does South Africa, by the way. Um, not a bad judicial system of governance of business activity. But, I mean, it was completely flouted. And it's flouted every day. Uh, I mentioned at the end of my article in the Financial Times, every year, two trillion dollars, two trillion dollars. I mean, you can't get your hand around. Multiply that by, I don't know, um, fifteen, and you get to the number of uh, of of rent. It's a, it's a gigantic amount. It's it's much bigger than most countries' GDP. Two trillion dollars is is money laundered and and corruptly looted around the world every day through through the financial pipelines of all the of all the banks and and other financial institutions that you know, a brand names internationally.
2: For context, the $2 trillion would be the equivalent of six times all the money spent in South Africa in a year. In other words, six times South Africa's GDP. That's that's what's going missing. But Peter, I, I'm, I'm very aware, having spent three years in London when we were setting up BizNews there, that the impact of having a voice in the UK itself is massively amplified compared with the bubble story, as you say, when it's it's restricted to South Africa. The Financial Times are our partners here at Biz News, and we've seen them pick up on the Bain story aggressively, saying in editorials that Bain clients should actually dissociate themselves, should cut their ties with Bain. This is fairly unprecedented from where I'm sitting. Is it from where you are?
5: It is pretty unprecedented and it's encouraging because my request to the British government and the American government is to withdraw Bain's license to operate until they've paid back the two billion rent that they earned in big fees from state-owned enterprises. Paid back, they say they've paid back 168 million of it in respect of their... Dismembering and twisting and uh, distorting of the of of SAR, the, the South African Revenue Service, but if they pay back all the two billion, most of it's looted money, and they also then go through the legal process that the Zondo Commission, South Africa's judicial commission, has recommended should happen, describing its activity as unlawful. <laughs> That's a pretty. That's a pretty serious charge to make by a judicial commission. Although Baines tried to wriggle out of it, I mean that's on the record, and the evidence is absolutely clear in my view. Then why should they continue to receive government contracts from the UK government? And I've asked for them to any of those contracts to be stopped immediately. Uh, they earn, for example, 55 million ront, Sorry, 55 million pounds sterling in contracts for the cabinet office alone over the last few years, you multiply that by 20, you're talking about a lot of rent. And um, uh, and so, so they are directly involved with government. And I'm saying you cannot operate in South Africa in the way that they did. And this goes for the other corporates as well. Uh, you cannot do this and expect to be treated as a reputable global corporate so much so that you actually receive government contracts from the British government, and I'm sure it's the same for the American government and probably the same for European governments where they operate and so on. These are all governments that like to hold their hands up and say, we are squeaky clean, we are against money laundering, blah, 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 we've got you know, all the legislation on the statute. But, well, my answer is, Put your money where your mouth is and stop these guys getting government contracts until they start behaving reputably, as clearly didn't happen in respect of Bain and Company uh, over the SARS contract and uh, as, as exposed by the Judicial Commission, the Zondo Commission, and over other fees they earn from state-owned enterprises.
2: Have they reached out to you, the executives of Bain?
5: <clears throat> they haven't. Um uh, you know, I'm I'm always willing to talk to anybody, but from my experience, just watching the way they've operated, I, I, I they're basically in denial. They've they even they've even had the gall to criticize the the Zondo Commission, when its evidence is scrupulous and its and its assessment and analysis, you know, the people doing it don't have an axe to grind. They're just after the truth. And they're pretty forensic about it. And, and I take my hat off to them. Uh, and when I gave evidence in front of the Zondo Commission, um, you know, the whole process was scrupulous. They went through my written evidence, 10,000 words of it. They checked. They gave the opportunity to the global corporates I was naming, uh, all of the lists that I've mentioned, to respond. None of the global corporates that i would named, all of which I've mentioned in this interview, did respond. So they didn't contest what I was saying or chose not to uh, come and counter a claim, except Standard Chartered, who had the absolute cheat to say, uh, no, this is, this is nothing to do with us. That The money that left Johannesburg, which we, uh, we admitted was we had Gupta accounts and the money did leave our, our Johannesburg office uh, through their accounts with us and it went to Dubai. We can't be held responsible for what happened in Dubai. This is what Standard Chartered said to said to the Zondo Commission, to which my res, my reply was, you know, in, in, showed incredul- incredulity, saying, "When in holes, stop digging, guys." When they're actually cornered, whether it was Standard Chartered in front of the Zondo Commission or Hogan Lovells in front of the the regulator for law firms in London, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, they then claim that they're not really the international operation that they palpably are. I'm only me. I don't have an office at all. I don't have any researchers. I don't have any kind of um, backup at all. Uh, I can only do what I can do. But these guys have got to be held to account.
2: It's quite instructive that Masoni, the South African Bain representative, the the, the head of the office here, who, who was so deeply implicated that even Bain fired him. For years, according to the whistleblower, Athol Williams, he would be celebrated at the Bain get-togethers, this wonderful uh, contributor to their profits. So, you wonder whether they're going to come up with this idea as well that, well, it is only in South Africa. The point, just to close off with Peter, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president in South Africa, has been handling this in a, it appears, a very mature manner. He said, first of all, he The Zondo Commission, which has been going on for four years, needs to complete. Then it needs to produce its reports, the second of which is now out. He has recommitted that by the 30th of June, he is going to recommend to the South African Parliament what needs to be done about this. If you could write that script for him, what would it be?
5: Well, I'm a a, a fan and a supporter of President Ramaphosa, who's operating in very difficult circumstances. I'm not, I'm because I'm, I'm frustrated about how slow things are and how difficult the terrain that he has to navigate seems um, from the outside uh, and, and you know it's it's frustrating but I, I think I think if I concentrate what he does for the South African Parliament is a matter for him and, uh, and the South African political scene but I'd like to see a robust stance um, that says to these uh, global corporates we want you to do business in South Africa but you've got to play by the rules and you've got to pay back these fees that you earned, because they're South South African taxpayers' money. And once you've done that, and once you've faced any legal proceedings, as Zondo has been as, as recommended in respect to Bain and Co, um, then you know South Africa is open for business. But you've got to be held to account, as as every other every South African economy, uh, a, a business that might have uh, been involved, and many were. And then I'd like to see um, an appeal directly to all the governments of the world to join South Africa in learning from this shabby, sordid uh, decade of of state capture and looting and money laundering and say, you know, this is, we we, we are all, as the governments of the world, as well as the global corporates, we're all responsible for this. We didn't stop it. Uh, And it's, this kind of thing is still going on. So I either... You know, I think there has to be a reckoning uh, in all of this, uh, and that's what I would hope might come of the, of the President's initiative, and I'd be cheering him on if that, if that occurs.
2: Are you still going to carry on, Peter? Are you still going to be in the House of Lords writing or, or giving your speeches and writing your op-eds for Financial Times and so on?
5: Well, only if there's something to do, and you, you know the way these things work if you happen to catch the moment when in in the case of a a global newspaper like um, the financial times it's interested and i uh, you know i'm I'm full of praise for them for carrying the piece and and encouraging me to write it and you know checking it out and sourcing it properly because obviously they didn't want any comeback from any of these powerful wealthy uh, global corporates um and for running it as strongly as they did uh, but you know, I'll, I'll I'll choose my moments when um, it seems the right thing to do. Uh, but I'm not going to kind of be banging on repetitively and becoming the bore of <laughs> of the body politic in in Britain. Um, uh, you you have to choose your moments and and you have to try to make a difference when you can, which has has you know, been my motto. And as for others to judge whether you know that's been effective or not.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Apple. I'm joining conversation by political analyst from the Institute for Global Dialogue, Sanusha Naidu. Sanusha, thank you for your time. Um, have you been able to get to reading the Transnet uh, report?
6: Uh, good afternoon, uh, Michael. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure to be chatting with you. Yeah, I did. I uh, managed to capture a little bit to remind the pun of the report. Uh, in analysing and reading and whatever. And it is quite an overwhelming report. I mean, both volumes, well, I call them volumes, the acting chief justice calls it parts one and two. But I think it's quite overwhelming in terms of the information that's there. And more importantly, I think the kind of transactions that were taking place, the big big question that both reports have to prove or, or establish is that state capture took place. And I think they do that quite eloquently or quite in depth in the kind of information that's furnished, the analysis that uh, is provided with the findings, and the recommendations and conclusions. I think on the transnet one, it shows you quite clearly what was the ecosystem of of state capture. How, firstly, the, 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 the capture itself was identified in where it will happen. So where was the money trail? Where would we actually go? Where was the money that needed to be captured? But firstly, before you capture the money, you've got to create a compliant board. So how do you then get the pressure or your influence, the appointment of board members? And not just of, uh, in, uh, you know the influence of, of, of who do you appoint on boards and the relationship of patronage networks and rent-seeking behavior, but it's also the question of the way in which you appoint people in particular positions on boards who can then sign off on these on these on these on these transactions, who can then you know the irregularity of what the role of the board is, and I think that comes out also very clearly in the in the way in which the uh, issues around Transnet are exposed in the in the second uh, part of the of the report. And in that context, I think you're seeing common denominators of implicated persons. If you look at one, Mr. Salim Essa. He's a common denominator as an enabler, as a facilitator, as an interlocker in all of these uh, transactions that have been irregular and so forth. You look at, in the case of um, uh, Mr. Arnold Singh, you know, not being able to answer some of those questions and playing a very kind of um, an ignorant kind of testimony before the commission, which then doesn't show that he actually should have served and that capacity as finance finance officer because he wasn't applying the rules of the Public Financial Management Act that that you have to apply in the context of uh, what what, what are the governance uh, frameworks that SOEs had to comply with. So these boards are really where the intelligence was happening, the intelligence of how do you capture the money and so forth. So I think that comes out very starkly. Whilst the information is quite Uh, voluminous and it's very much in-depth, I think you've got to start thinking about the way in which the orchestration of capture takes place as well. The the way in which people have decided that it will be particular SOEs that we are going for. And you've got your DNLs, you've got your Transnets, you've got your SAAs, you've got your ESCOMs. And and these were key, these were key SOEs in the infrastructure and in the uh, economic infrastructure and delivery of the state services.
1: You know, so Transnet's market demand strategy saw 300 billion being pumped into five divisions of Transnet and locomotives procurement would, I've seen varying numbers between 50 to 70 billion was to be spent on on locomotives procurement. And that's really where a very nice feeding frenzy took took place with the likes of Regiments and Trillian and McKinsey and all the various Gupta companies and Gupta-affiliated and Gupta-linked companies, everybody getting a cut out of the the procurements deal. And, And then at the end of the day, the damn trains are too tall for the majority of our network. So, I mean, they couldn't even get that right. The grand scale of the theft here is astonishing. Did we derive any benefit out of what Mr... Molefe, Singh, Siobonga, Gama, what what any of those big wigs were doing? Did, did the South African taxpayer derive any benefit from their time at, at that particular SOE?
6: Unfortunately, Michael, I have to say no. I have to, you know, sadly enough, it's not just Transnet. You look at Eskom. You look at the amount of pain the South African taxpayer and the South African citizen has to go through in order to absorb the costs of this capture. I mean, you look at our transport system, our rail network, all of that should have been a functioning uh, integrative approach to our economy, to connect people to the market, to the workplace, to actually make uh, transport more affordable for people. Because if you're going to spend that kind of money on locomotives and get it wrong, then the question is, what was the real intention of putting that money into, into these public coffers? And at the end of the day, I think the South African public is the real victim in all of this. It's not the political elites. It's not the economic elites. It's not your trillions and your and your and your affiliates and all of that. For me personally, I mean, I know people raise this question a lot about this family that was suddenly given all of this power to be able to shape and influence. But at the same time, you've got to ask yourself, or I ask myself every single day, somebody in the ruling elite, enable them to do this? Because if you didn't enable them to do this, we wouldn't be sitting with this. You know, it's it's the money is just mad money. It's unimaginable, the amount of money that has gone. You, you think about it and you ask yourself, how much more must, must the ordinary South African pay for the greed of these individuals? Not just the Guptas, the greed of everybody else in this. You, like you say, it was a feeding trough. This is where we are. This is where we're going in. This is where we're going to capture all of these resources. And not for a single moment there was any remorse. Not for a single moment there was any shame. Not for a single moment there was any thought that the people that are going to suffer the most are the people that are sitting in your informal settlements who still don't have proper housing, proper water, sanitation, roads, etc. They're not connected to the market. And yet, you are sitting there and you're thinking, it's okay for me to steal. So, somewhere in all of this, whilst there are implicated individuals, I think we also got to think about who gave this go ahead. Because to do this, it has to be a very, very systematic approach to saying, we're going to do this. We're going to basically steal money from the state.
1: So, the report obviously makes a finding in relation to just how much uh, the Guptas were able to spirit away out of Transnet and it's, you know, 42 billion rand. By the time the the ESCOM report comes out, that 42 billion rand may look like a drop in the ocean. What do you think?
6: I I agree with that assessment. And and even think the 42 billion that we see in the report that um, is presented as the money that was captured, I don't think that is even the accurate figure at this point in time. We don't know whether it's bigger than that, um, and of course, it's also possible that this is just what this is the tip of the iceberg of what we are seeing in coming out in the four years that the Zondo, or that the State Capture Commission has been working. And I think one of the, one of the interesting recommendations, even in the context of Transnet, is asking the na- na- national prosecuting authorities or the prosecuting authorities of the state to dig deeper because they've now got this information that they can use that has been put together by the commission as an architecture of what was happening and as a context with where the money has been stolen and what's going on so this is this is a lot of the lot of the contextual framing of this of this information is there for the prosecuting authority but one of the things that I, that I found interesting in the analysis of transnet was the question of racketeering how do we interpret that in the South African case law, and how do we interpret it under POCA, which is the Prevention of Organised Crime Act? Uh, I think I got the acronym maybe a bit um, broad in there. And I think one of the things that the um, acting Chief Justice says in that in, in relation to racketeering, which is a big global issue as well, you know, in, in various parts of the world. If you look at the G20 as well, you racketeering is not just one simple act or one simple uh, act of, of, of defrauding or anti-corruption I mean, corruption or graft or whatever. It is a systematic way in which you put together a network of racketeering that involves individuals, that involves different systems of, of, of defrauding the state or defrauding global uh, networks. Um, and, and if you look at the G20, the G20 has, has to deal with this financial global governance system and how do you put in the kinds of checks and balances. I think in South Africa, the question would be now is how would the prosecuting authority take this forward because the, um, in the report, it is recommended that their further investigation needs to be taken for these implicated individuals at Transnet. And so the question is, how do you define that as a criminal act in the context of racketeering? Because very often racketeering is associated with a single act, with a single criminal activity, or maybe it's just corruption, maybe it's that or whatever. But I think at the other end of this is us now, I mean, the legal, the prosecuting authority, our, our justice system, and looking at a criminal justice system, looking at how we define organized crime was what we saw in what the report says about Transnet organized crime and how that organized crime was then effected to defraud the state and capture to happen.
1: It's amazing the role that consultants played um you looked at the South African Revenue Service with Bain & Co. You've got McKinsey here and the use of certain financial advisors, uh, trillion regiments. But there really was, and the the report makes this point, all of the skills required um, for all of the tenders and the deals that Transnet required, all the skills were in-house. There was a team of 40 experts that could have done all the work, yet they, they, they went to market and they... They doubled up on their fees to be able to to bring in these consultants. Um, I think it would be naive to think that that isn't uh, practiced quite widely across government. What do you think?
6: No, I think so. I think when you when you look at consultants globally, I mean, one of the areas I look at is aid, aid that comes from countries to developing countries or to underdeveloped countries, and it's it's interesting when you look at the aid. Uh, that eventually gets to what the intent and purposes are for that aid. By the time you get to the actual real real impact of that money, it's almost a fraction what was originally promised because you've got the consultants, you've got the, the they set up a, 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 a um, an in country office because they need to tell you how to 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 manage the money. They set up a parallel financial services, an auditing company, and this is what consultants do not just in South Africa; they do it around the world. So, in the last couple of in the last decade and a half or more. What has happened is that the consultancy world has moved increasingly into this kind of governance architecture, where they are now the ones that are the uh, experts that are advising government on how to use money that's coming in. But there's a co- there's a complicit nature here between the consultant who acts as an intermediate between the government and, of course, your 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 um, contractor that's coming in and so the contractor has a bit of an interesting relationship with the consultant company and so they work out a particular way in which they you know it's the 10% of everything that's the bottom line i get 10% and i will make the recommendation that you are the most appropriate contractor or t- or tender uh, uh, bidder that needs to get the contract and because there's this there's this complicit nature and so this is this is what i find interesting about the entire Four years of what the what the Zondo Commission has produced in these two reports is that we are now having to deal with the fact that South Africa is not an exception to global global norms around the way in which money is being captured, in the way um, countries are are now realizing that consultants and consultant fees and tender projects, are, you know, the evaluation of these projects is all going into this comp—this complicit nature and, 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 and patronage network between state, uh, these consultants, and of course, these bidders. And so this is where I, I think South Africa is caught in the dilemma that when we, when we think about ourselves, we have to, dis, you know, assuage this idea that we are exceptions to rules. We are actually now experiencing what the rest of the world is experiencing. If you go to Latin America and you look at the way the consultants work there, if you go to Asia, for example, and you look at countries like China and India and etc., you know, there's this. Uh, now you're beginning to see in in, in in China, there's that there's that need to 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 push these 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 ten percent guys out of the range because these guys have been making a whole host of 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 enrichment um, contracts for themselves. So this is what Xi Jinping has done, but if you go across, you know, in, in, in parts of Asia, Africa, even in North America, in the developed economies, there's always the person that comes in and says, I'm the guy that can make it happen. I'm the company that can make it happen. I also think there needs to be something about these consultancy firms because these consultancy firms are actually taking away, like you rightly pointed out, in house skills. Why do you have to subcontract them? to do a vetting and a monitoring and evaluation and a a feasibility study of a contract. Why do they need to come in with their big consultancy fees when you have the in-house expertise?
1: You earlier spoke about being caught in a dilemma. Somebody else caught in a dilemma is Cyril Ramaphosa. He is receiving these reports. He has publicly acknowledged that he is going to respond to Parliament by the 30th of June, Yet he's a man that needs to get re-elected by his ANC comrades in December. The rock and hard place analysis here, you act too harshly against your comrades, does that place him in a vulnerable position come December? Or is he in a in a powerful enough position to, to have the NPA, the Hawks, um, who should be doing their work independent of what Mr. Ramaphosa thinks, but let's not be naive and enough of his comrades go down or are indicted or are being investigated? Does that place him in a vulnerable position come December?
6: I think he's in a very, very vulnerable position. I think the bigger challenge for him is whether or not he's going to be decisive. Does he put party first? Does he put the state first? And I think that is the big challenge for Mr. Ramaphosa or President Ramaphosa. I mean, this is a very, very challenging year, not just for, for the state, but for the party. So in the state, you know, you got this, this this kind of thinking that in an elective year previously for the for the party, it's always about the state going nowhere slowly. Even more so this year because of the the dynamics. You know, if you look at the, at at what has happened in the beginning of the year, how different opponents in the party have come out guns blazing with their positioning on issues of the challenging the constitution and challenging the judiciary and so forth. But at the same time, it's also about whether or not in the party you're going to be living dangerously in the elective year. So in the in, it's the year of going slowly nowhere in the state, while in the, in the, in the party, it's the year of living dangerously. And is Mr. Miramaposa willing to do that in the party right now? Because he talks about renewal, he talks about recalibration, he talks about a unity. We know this party is in a complete state of 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 non-renewal, it it cannot be renewed in the way in the current context that it finds itself in, and I'm not sure there's anything there to renew.
1: What uh, sloganeering or (laughs) platitudes are you looking to avoid? Come the State of the Nation address later this week, What, what, what do you? I mean, if you listen to to President Ramaphosa's speeches in an ANC capacity, it's renewal of the organization, the fight against state capture and, and so on. What do you want to hear coming out of the, the president come SONA time, bearing in mind everything we know that happened under his watch uh, as deputy president? And some will still will will argue that so much of the wrongdoing continues to this day. What do you want to hear coming from him uh, at the SONA? You
6: know, I'm not... I'm not holding my breath on this sonar, to be quite honest. I think we're going to see more of a way in which he's going to have, like you said, platitudes. He's going to talk about the reports that he's received thus far. He's going to say that, I just saw something on the news now that suggests that he's going to talk about what's the way forward or some some level of, of taking the investigations and the prosecution forward. But I'm not holding my breath because I think that he has to he he has to show us the decisive nature of his leadership, and if you look at his last uh, four uh, Sona addresses, there's a lot that he's put in there, but nothing has substantively substantively been implemented, and that's the challenge he has. So I think that there are going to be. These these, these these things that uh, he's going to talk about, that he understands that there's a crisis, he understands that there's a challenge, that there's a governance deficit, that the state uh, capture reports one and two have shown that uh, there's this implications of, of what capture means. But I don't think he's going to be... Uh, he's going to wait till June 30th, I think, and when he does come to Parliament, he's going to then talk to Parliament in that capacity as the as the head of the, of, the, of the Republic. So I'm not holding my breath that the President is going to give us some earth-shattering announcement in the state of the nation on this report, because he still has to get the final report. Uh, to uh, from 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 the chief from the acting chief justice, and in that final report, it's also the role that he played. You mentioned his role as deputy state president at the time when all this was going on in the second term of the Jacob Zuma presidency. And the question then, I'm very interested to 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 read: How does the 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 chief the acting chief justice interpret the testimony? that the president gave, both as the head of the party and as the head of the republic, and whether or not he would come to the conclusion, because I think in his um, 12-hour, what you call this, um, appearance before the Judicial Review Commission for the post of Chief Justice, there was a lot about that, about did he give the president a bit of the benefit of the doubt? Was he not too soft on him? And so forth and so forth. So I think that's gonna be, interesting, does he say that the President has to be accountable? Because then we're sitting with a different set of dynamics, because this is the President of the Republic, and if pr- former President Jacob Zuma had essentially not held up the oath of his office as the President of the Republic, and if the third report kind of in the intimates, not even explicitly, but intimates in a kind of roundabout way that the President May also have been have would have dropped the ball on certain things in the way that he presented it. Then we're sitting with another bigger dilemma in terms of whether he also did not uphold the oath of his office as deputy president, and then of course what he did as president. But remember that he's not being he's not being judged as president of the republic. It was his time as deputy president of the of the state.
1: That's a very interesting point you make. Actually, the reason the public protector Advocate Tuli Maronzela didn't want Jacob Zuma to be the person choosing uh, who would chair an inquiry was because Jacob Zuma was himself named several times and was implicated in the wrongdoing. Therefore, she appointed the Chief Justice to come up with a name which would be suitable for the President. What if the, the President now, who was the Deputy President then of the party, is also an implicated party now? That leaves that leaves us in a very precarious position. Sanush and I do. Thanks for racking my brain and appreciate your time.
6: It's a pleasure, Michael. Absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: Today is Tuesday, February eighth,
0: and this is your FT News Briefing. Just when you thought it couldn't get worse for Credit Suisse, the bank is on trial now for allegedly laundering money for a Bulgarian mafia. And the EU is trying to get tough on American big tech companies, but the White House isn't on board. Plus, refugees coming from France often land in Dover, England. So how do the people there feel about the
7: arrival of these migrants? It makes no more sense to be for it or against it than it does to be for or against the weather
0: we'll talk to the writer Horatio Clare about his visit to Dover in our second of three reports on the UK migrant crisis. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The White House is lobbying the European Union to water down landmark tech regulation. The legislation would prevent companies like Google and Amazon from using their market power to stifle competition. But the FT reports that a senior U.S. official wrote to the EU lawmaker who is leading negotiations on the Digital Markets Act. They're hoping Brussels will not just target American tech companies. The FT's Javier Espinosa says if the EU does go down the path it's on, it could dramatically affect the way big tech does business
2: potentially a company like Apple will be forced to open its App Store to competing App Stores. This is quite a radical change because it means that what has been essentially a walled garden controlled by a gatekeeper, it's opened up to competition. This could potentially mean that a company like Apple loses billions. So what is next is a ramping up of lobbying from the US government, uh, ramping up from tech companies. So it is fair to say that this is round one or round two of many more to come.
0: Javier Espinoza covers European tech regulation for the Financial Times. Credit Suisse yesterday became the first Swiss bank in the country's history to go on trial for criminal charges. The allegations are that between 2004 and 2008, the bank processed funds for a Bulgarian mafia, and that it didn't do enough to adequately question the source of the funds or conduct proper checks on its clients. Now, the bank denies all this, but the FT Sam Jones says this, plus all the other ongoing scandals, have caused huge damage to Credit Suisse's reputation. It's had a really rough two years, not just with this case, but with a whole series of scandals, with personnel departures. Chief executive to Jantiam was forced out over a spying scandal, and and only in the last few weeks, its new chairman Antonio Horto Osorio he had to resign for breaking Swiss quarantine rules. And then there's been a whole series of kind of scandals uh, where the bankers uh, lost investors' money. This comes after a long and, and rather troublesome period for for Credit Suisse, and more. Importantly, as well, this case in the sort of broader context is really important for Switzerland because it is the first instance of a bank, a Swiss bank, being charged uh, with criminal offenses. Uh, This just hasn't happened in Swiss law before. So the outcome of this case is
6: really important.
0: Sam Jones is the FT's Austria and Switzerland correspondent. Yesterday, we brought you to a refugee camp in northern France. We heard from migrants like this 28-year-old woman, Bakan.
6: We have some, about some families there, and our English is better than friends. Learning a new language is really difficult. We just want to go study there, continue our life there.
0: Refugees want to make the treacherous journey across the English Channel, and what's often on the other side is the town of Dover. It's been in the national and international spotlight for its role in the refugee crisis, but what does it actually look like on the ground? And how do people feel about the responsibility of bringing refugees to safety and hosting them in Dover? Author Horatio Clare recently visited Dover to answer these questions. He joins me now as part of our three-part series on the migrant crisis. Hi, Horatio. Hi, Mark. So, Horatio, we're hearing about these waves of people in boats and inflatable dinghies crossing the channel arriving on British shores. What did you see?
7: Well, it's fascinating because it's, unless you're quite lucky, it's quite hard to see. So um, these boats cross the channel um, every still day, pretty well, and certainly every still calm night. It's about 21 miles, uh, and there's some of them set off from Dunkirk, which is more like 30 miles. There's a long shingle beach to the south of Dover, which is Dungeness, and a lot of them end up there. And then there are bays to the north, St. Margaret's and Kingsdown, and others end up there. But unless you are lucky, um, you won't see that. What happens is that about halfway over the channel, they're picked up by radar, by spotter plane, transferred from their boats into British vessels, either the lifeboat or border force, and taken into Dover Harbour, where they disappear very quickly from view. Why is the story of Dover an important one? So what's shocking about this whole story is that it's told as if it's some sort of invasion, and that's what I was expecting on Dover's shore. you know, a resistance and anger, perhaps a xenophobia. In fact, I found people deeply engaged in this extraordinary effort to save and protect these people. It's a humanitarian miracle, but we're not being told that story as it is. We're being told it as if it's all some sort of invasion by a faceless third force made up of these semi-alien beings called migrants. And the awful thing is it does a terrible disservice to the people of Dover who, it turns out, behind their brightly coloured tabards, because there's an in hiring boom, you know, security companies, tended to be or were gentle, humane, often retired, on minimum wage now, and come down to the docks and put on their security gear to help these people, to make sure they were all right. That's ordinary British people doing a really kind job that they really mind about out of the goodness pretty well of their hearts. So Horatio, you, you
0: talked to a bunch of people, but only after you agreed not to use their names. Uh, I understand border officials or other government employees not wanting, not wanting their name out there. But why do you think across the board people were so hesitant
7: to have their name out there? So normally um, lifeboat personnel, so the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, um, I was a lifeboat man once, and lifeboat men and women are prized and loved in their communities, or have been up until recently, when they were accused of acting like a taxi service for migrants by the right and by the hard right, particularly. So the reason they don't now talk is because that fear of provoking, I think, a backlash For those reasons, and also for very personal reasons, the impression that within families and within network groups, people have different feelings about the people coming across the channel. And that because the press has characterised it as this sort of Um, invasion. You're either for it, uh, in which case, you know, you're a lefty, uh, you're uh, out of touch, you're the elite, or uh, you're characterized as being right-wing xenophobic thug. Um, And clearly neither of these things are true. But this issue, because of the way it's been reported, I think, polarizes.
0: Horatio, you depicted the situation in in a really interesting way that you can be either for it or against it and it occurs to me that for people in Dover it just kind of is right like this is the situation they have no control over it and they can choose how they react and that's kind of the heart of what your reporting and your writing
7: shows you're exactly right it's it, it. makes no more sense to be for it or against it than it does to be for or against the weather, and the people of Dover, particularly one lifeboat Coxon, who articulated this to me beautifully, absolutely summed that up. They said, "He said we are uh, the interface with the continent. It's like that's what it is here. It's war, refugees, um, which was Dover has a very proud history of taking in, and now migrants. Um, that's what it's like. And you're absolutely right. You're, you're, there's no for or against it. It is what it is." And it hasn't been particularly well looked after. You can see how austerity has bitten Dover. Kay Marsh, uh, the resident and campaigner there, said that, you know, this is a working class town which has plenty of problems. Most of us don't think about how people coming across the channel are going to survive. We're too busy surviving ourselves. So you're right. They do get on with it. Um, And when that means that there's work and that that work means helping people, um, what I saw was people doing it gladly. Of everything that you saw on your visit to Dover,
0: Horatio, is there one is there one image that stands out in your mind, one scene that
7: you really remember? that's a beautiful question um so it's dark it's before dawn it's raining it's really cold a boat has come across they've been welcomed in they've been saved from the channel they've been taken up they've been checked for coronavirus been given warm clothing and now uh they're being issued ushered onto a bus to be taken uh, to a place of safety to be given hot food and there's a woman and she's got a child in her arms um she's wearing a mask and her head is covered the child is fully swaddled they're safe. They've done the most dangerous journey that anyone has done that night anywhere on earth, actually. And the moment that I can see is she's stepping onto the bus and there's a man behind her in a luminous jacket and he's got his arms kind of out, you know, like as a gentleman would sort of saying, you know, you that gesture, up you go. And there's a woman in security jacket and she's on the bus welcoming her and pointing down the aisle to the lady's seat. And you think, actually... You know, it happens that those people are Brits, and in some ways that's the best of Britain. But what that is, is the best of us. That is the safe looking after the imperiled. Horatio Clare is the author of Down to the
0: Sea and Ships, of Ageless Oceans and Modern Men. We will put a link to his FT article about Dover in our show notes. Thank you for your time, Horatio. Thank you for having me,
7: Mark. It's been a pleasure.
0: Tomorrow we wrap up our three-part series on the UK migrant crisis. We'll hear how different governments are approaching the crisis and whether a solution is possible. Before we go, sources told the FT that SoftBank's $66 billion sale of UK-based chip business ARM to NVIDIA officially collapsed on Monday. It comes after regulators in the US, UK, and EU all raised concerns about how the deal would affect competition in the global semiconductor industry. The deal would have been the largest ever in the chip sector. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
2: You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.